right, as the children are being dismissed, let's take our Bibles, if we could, and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. The title of our message this morning is Life's Most Important Issue. See, I always got to figure out a way to get people to listen. So why not call the sermon Life's Most Important Issue? In fact, that's not just a marketing scheme. This is reality. There is no more important issue to think about involving the eternity of the soul than what we're going to speak of this morning in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. And as you're turning to Genesis, um, Ed did a great job mentioning all of the announcements. Just a couple of other things to add to the list is May the 14th and 15th, we are going to be hosting a prophecy conference here at Sugarland Bible Church. And you say, well, why are you picking May the 14th? Does anybody know? May the 14th is the day of Israel's birthday. And so we're going to be having a prophecy conference here Saturday and then extending into our services here on Sunday, dealing with the subject of the nation of Israel. And so on your way out on the CD table, there's a little flyer to kind of give you some familiarity of the conference and the speakers we're going to have. And speaking of Israel, I had a chance to contribute an article to Arnold Fruchtenbaum's. Um, I guess he knows I quote him a lot here <laughs> in his magazine. And there's a copy of that on the CD table on your way out. If you're interested, if we run out, don't panic. We'll have plenty more next week. Well, we have been moving through the book of Genesis verse by verse. We have finished Genesis 1 through 11, which is the beginning of the human race featuring four events. Creation, fall, flood, national dispersion. And as that has been unfolding, there's been the tracing of a promise. Genesis 3 verse 15. The first prophecy of the coming Messiah given in the Bible. And you want to keep that in your mind because that's going to become a very big, 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 big deal here today as we look at our verses, verses 1 through 6. And we moved away from the beginning of the human race to focusing on the special nation that is going to bring forth this Messiah, the nation of Israel. And so Genesis 12 through 50 focuses now on this special nation that God is starting. And it begins with this patriarch named Abram. Had God not dealt with Abram, we would not have the nation of Israel. If we did not have the nation of Israel, we would not have Jesus Christ. We would really have nothing to celebrate this month at Christmas. But we have been tracing the early life and journeys of this man Abram, and we now come to, which I think is, and I'll try to make this case 
as we go through these verses today and the subsequent weeks, this probably is the most important chapter of the Bible. Because if you can understand Genesis 15, you can understand everything that God is doing in the Bible. But without this background, a lot of the things God does in the Bible are sort of a a strange happening to us. They are a mystery. So the chapter really has two parts to it. Verses 1 through 6, the seed promise. Remember, Abram was told that he would have many seed or children. That promise is clarified, verses 1 through 6. And then the land promise, Abram was told that he would possess one day all of the land of Canaan. That promise is now ratified into an official covenant, verses 7 through 21. But this morning we're only going to have time to take a look at, Lord willing, verses 1 through 6. There's our outline of verses 1 through 6 as we look at it this morning. God's promise, verse 1. Abram's misunderstanding of the promise, verses 2 and 3. God's clarification, verses 4 and 5. And then you get this response from Abram. Notice, if you will, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, where the promise is reiterated. Look at this. It says in verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you, and your reward will be very great. Notice, first of all, this expression, after these things. After what things? After the things that just happened in chapter 14 and chapter 13. And when you take chapter 13 and you take chapter 14 and you put them together, what you learn is that Abram separated himself. He separated himself from Lot, chapter 13, verse 11. He separated himself from the king of Sodom. He would take no spoils or wealth from the king of Sodom because he didn't want the king of Sodom to think that the king of Sodom made Abram rich. And now that this man Abram has separated himself through sanctification, he's willing and able to receive one of the greatest revelations that has ever been given to the human race. So this is sort of an interesting pattern to us because we oftentimes wonder why the Lord is not blessing. Lord, why are you not blessing this? Or why are you not blessing that? Why are you not blessing me? Why am I not enjoying the intimacy that I once had with you? And the question is, well, have you separated yourself unto the Lord? Or are we still holding on to worldly values, worldly thinking, perpetually dwelling on the world's way of doing things? Those things will stifle the grace of God, the voice of God, the leading of God, the guidance of God, the illumination of God in your life more than any other single thing. So Abram is in this position of being able to receive a tremendous blessing because he had separated himself unto God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, Abram is blessed 
by God. We know that because Genesis 12, verse 2, God says to Abram, I will bless you. And one of those blessings is he receives seven times direct communication from God. This particular communication that he's about to receive apparently took the form of a vision. If you look at verse 1, you'll see the word vision there. It's something that Abram, I think, saw. And what does God say to Abram? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear. Now, this issue of do not fear must be very important because this is what God said to Abram here. And it is what God will say to Isaac, his son, Genesis 26, verse 24. And it's what God is going to say to Jacob, Genesis 46, verse 3. God keeps saying over and over again to these fountainheads of Israel, the patriarchs, do not fear, do not be afraid. Solomon in the book of Proverbs says this, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Fear, anxiety, is not a condition that is to habitually characterize the life of the child of God. All of us are afraid of different things, but God tells us over and over again not to yield to fear. In fact, to young Timothy, who was pastoring the church at Ephesus, Paul would write these words, For God, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. If you find yourself today as a child of God constantly in fear, those feelings and thoughts aren't coming from God. They're either coming from Satan and his fallen angelic realm, or they're coming from the sin nature. Because God says, do not fear. In fact, it's interesting that when you look at the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 8 sometime, it describes unbelievers in the lake of fire, and it begins to give their characteristics. What are unbelievers like? And the very first characteristic of unbelievers in Revelation 21, verse 8, is the cowardly. You know, even before it mentions immoral, sorcerers, murderers, God says the very first thing that characterizes an unbeliever is cowardice, fear. Because God has not given us, as his children, a spirit of timidity. In fact, when you uh, search out... How many times in the Bible does it say, do not fear? The number I come to is 365 times. Hey, that's interesting. That's once for every day of the year. Every day of the year, God is telling his people, do not fear. Do not be, a, do not be afraid. And there's a lot of things happening in the world today with uh, shutdowns, lockdowns, Government tyranny, loss of jobs, inflation. I mean, there's a lot of things from the human perspective to be afraid of. And yet, God's word to us is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does God say? He says, do not fear. 
Do not yield to the emotion of fear, but stand on my word and my truth and my promises, because what is God going to do for Abraham? Then called Abram. He says there in verse 1, I am a shield to you. What is a, what is a shield? A shield is a protector. We certainly saw that protection going on in Genesis 14, where a 75-year-old man won a military conflict against an eastern conglomeration of, of nations that he should have never won. So God says, I'm a shield to you, and you saw that, Abram, as I interacted with you in Genesis 14. You know, it's interesting that when Job was tested, we learn in early Job, Job chapters 1 and 2, that God had placed a hedge of protection around Job where Satan could not get into Job's life without divine permission. That same protection is around me. That same protection is around you. Anything that's happening in your life is being allowed by God himself for a greater purpose. And if therefore nothing in my life comes into my life without the divine design of God, then why am I always nervous? Why am I always fearful? Why, why are we always afraid? And Abraham, Abram was told, do not be afraid. You continue on in verse 1, and it says, Your reward shall be very great. God is in the rewarding business. And it's interesting, Abram could have rewarded himself. I mean, Genesis 14, he could have taken the spoils of war all for himself because of the right of conquest, yet he did not. And you see that same pattern in Abram's life in Genesis 13 where he tells Lot, look, whatever land you don't take, I'll take. You go west, I'll go east. You go east, I'll go west. And it's interesting that Abram was not in a posture in his life where he was always looking out for himself, trying to enrich himself. And God sees that and tells Abram, don't worry about rewarding yourself, I'll reward you. Don't worry about making your name great as they were doing at the Tower of Babel, I'll make your name great. And so many times we lose sight of that. We, we think that somehow if we don't look out for number one, who will? And yet the biblical truth is the words of Christ, Matthew 6 verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things, what are these things? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? What are we going to put on? How much money is in my retirement account? What's the interest rate? What's the inflation rate? God says, forget about all that. You know, be a good steward, but seek me first. And all these other things I'll, I'll add to you. Abram is rewarded by God because Abram wasn't trying to reward himself. And 
you continue on here in verses 2 and 3 where we move away from the promise to a misunderstanding. Look at verses 2 and 3. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Verse 3. And Abram said, Since you have given me no no offspring to me, the one born in my house is my heir. Abram says, I'm childless. Now that's a problem, because the last time we checked in with his age, it was 75. His wife... Sarai was no spring chicken either. She's 10 years behind him. She's 65. And Abram is saying, Lord, you just told me I'm going to be rewarded. But what good is it if I have no heir, if I have no child? I mean, what good is being blessed by you if I have no one to transmit the blessing to. In other words, Abram is sort of complaining, Lord, you've promised me prosperity, but where, where's my posterity? I mean, what good does it really do to be the richest person if you have no one to transfer your blessings to? So Abram said, well, I guess Eliezer of Damascus will have to do. Now, this gentleman, Eliezer of Damascus, where did he come from? Well, you remember that Abram was called from the Ur of the Chaldeans. He was called up to an area called Haran up north. That another name for that is the area in and around Damascus. And we believe that's where uh, Eliezer of Damascus joined the household of Abram. And then Abram begins to move down south into the land of Canaan, the land of promise, which eventually would be called the land of Israel. So he has someone in his household who is not his natural child and not his natural son. And so his assumption is, well, you know, Lord, I guess all of these rewards and blessings you promised me, I guess it's going to be Eliezer of Damascus who's going to be an heir to all of these things. It is interesting that when you get into biblical archaeology, somebody actually asked me a question there at the break on biblical archaeology. It is interesting to me that the archaeological record does not contradict the teachings of the Bible. In fact, the archaeological record is filled with evidence that the stories that we're reading about here are not just stories. These are historical events. This is how it worked in the ancient Near East. Everything we know about the ancient Near East, especially during the time of Abram, worked according to what he thinks is going to happen here in verses 2 and 3. Because the heir, if you didn't have a natural child, always went to the lead servant in your household. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, the inheritor Abram had was one of his servants. He shall be the possessor of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, who was his chief servant. This statement is in accordance with the Code of Hammurabi. Now, the Code of Hammurabi is a legal code that predates the law of Moses by at least four centuries. 
This statement is in accordance with the Code of Hammurabi and the Nuzi tablets. A childless husband and wife were free to adopt their slave in order to have an heir inherit their possessions. So what you're reading about here in terms of what is in Abram's mind is exactly what we know from the archaeological record. This is how it always worked. You have no natural son, you have no natural heir, then your wealth, your prosperity went to your chief servant. I find this very interesting because the liberals have dismissed Genesis 15 a long time ago. Oh, it's just a bunch of fables. It never actually happened. Don't you know that Moses really didn't write this, they say? These things are the compilation of somebody long after the time of Moses. They deny Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. This all started in Germany in a movement called Higher Criticism in the 19th century. And look at the state of the churches in Germany today and Europe. And you could see exactly where this liberal thinking leads. It leads into a dead end. As a pastor, when I tour Europe, I'm not so much worried about or concerned about all of the liberal thinking that came in through the seminaries. I'm concerned about the churches because the churches there are dead. Christianity, by all intents and purposes, from a human perspective, Christianity is over in Europe. Europe was the cradle of the Protestant Reformation. What what destroyed the churches in Europe? What destroyed it was one attack after another on God's word, particularly Genesis. And yet with the discovery of the Code of Hammurabi, the Nuzi tablets, all of these things that we have, everything that's happened in Europe could have been avoided if they had consulted the archaeological record. If they had the knowledge of archaeology that we have today, it's very doubtful whether higher criticism would have ever gotten off the ground. And I share these things with you because when you're watching Mysteries of the Bible, A&E, the History Channel, and someone comes on there and they start to spout the party line or the party narrative that the book of Genesis is just a bunch of myths, Your children are watching that. And your grandchildren are watching that. And you need to be in a position to say, well, that's not true, what they said there through the television. Let me tell you what the archaeological record actually says. So I go into these things not to bore you with a bunch of information about archaeology. I'm trying to show you that the archaeological record is in harmony with the Bible, if anything. It creates a scenario whereby you can say, you know what? The biblical stories make sense. Therefore, they're not myth. And you'll have an answer. As 1 Peter 3 verse 15 commands us to give every man an answer for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. And we're in a time in church history in the United States of America where we start needing to be equipped to give answers. 
And you may not have some vast apologetics ministry, but I'll show you where you do have it. You have it in your own house. With your own children, with your own grandchildren who are hearing things from teachers, hearing things from cable, hearing things from television, hearing things from media that simply aren't true. And if you allow those thoughts in those little minds to go unchecked and unfettered, then Christianity in the United States will become just like it became in Europe. That's why these kinds of things matter. So what Abram is saying here makes perfect sense from an archaeological perspective. It's totally consistent with the Code of Hammurabi. And I think what you're seeing here in Abram, although he has seen the hand of God over and over again, is you're seeing some worldliness still in his thought process. Because when God saves us and begins to move us through phase two of our salvation, the middle tense, progressive sanctification, that's a process. Justification occurs in a nanosecond, as we'll see later. But growth in Christ is a process. And there are highs and there are lows. And there are ups and there are downs. And you might have had some great success with the Lord last week, as Abram had in Genesis 14. But the Lord says you're still a work in progress. You've still brought into your mind a lot of worldly type things which were there before you were saved. And I'm going to have to teach you how to think rightly about this because what we're going to see is God has a totally different way of doing things. God is not limited by the legal standards of the ancient Near East. He's the God of the impossible. And we're going to see God speak to that in just a bit. Colossians 2 verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Abram is still thinking with elementary principles. He's thinking in terms of this is how the world works. And we learn in Genesis Is there anything too hard for the Lord? There's nothing too hard for the Lord. This issue of childlessness is not a problem, as we'll see. This is why the book of Romans, chapter 12 and verse 2, says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is acceptable and perfect. That's the growth process of the Christian, the mental renewal that we're constantly under. And Abram, despite these great promises and past successes, is still under that process because he's still thinking here in a worldly way. This is how the world operates. And consequently, verses 4 and 5, God then gives a clarification. If you look there at Genesis 15, verse 4, it says, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Now, this is the second time in the span of just a few verses where God talks again. 
And Abram, as we've said, was blessed unto God because he is receiving direct revelation from God. So what did God say to Abram's misunderstanding that, oh, I don't have a child, so obviously it's going to be Eliezer of Damascus who is going to gain the inheritance. God says, Genesis 15, verses 4 and 5, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, Eliezer of Damascus, will not be your heir. But one who will come forth from your own body, a natural son, in other words, he shall be your heir. Verse 5, he took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be, close quote, coming from your own body, not from Eliezer of Damascus. I mean, the clarification couldn't be clearer. This uh, business of innumerable descendants coming from your own body, it is in harmony with what we learned earlier in Genesis 13, verse 16, where God said, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. It's in harmony with Genesis 15, verse 5, which says they'll be as innumerable as the stars. It's in harmony with Revelation, excuse me, Genesis 22, verse 17, when when he says your descendants will be as the sands of the seashore. Look at the imagery that's being used here. Dust of the earth, stars of heaven, and sands of the seashore. That's how many descendants you're going to have coming from your 75 plus old body. It's interesting that God says to Abram here, look at the heavens and count the stars if you can count them. You have to understand that a statement like that is completely ahead of its time. It's absolutely scientifically prescient in what it says. Because as you go through the different philosophers of the different ages, all of them thought that they could count the stars. You know, they came up with, you can see it in Greek Greek literature, Roman literature, I don't care what era you're in, they all thought they were the smartest people in the room, smartest people in the world, because they knew how many stars there were. So here we are now in the 20th century, 20th century, 21st century, where now we have the Hubble telescope. And as you look through the Hubble telescope, you suddenly learn that don't waste your time counting the stars. Because there are, there are so many of them, it would defy human computation just to come up with a number. Now how would little old Abram receive this without even the advent of the Hubble telescope. Because God who designed the universe does not need the Hubble telescope. He designed it. And that's why as you go through the Bible, you'll see a plethora of statements that are made that are way, way ahead scientifically. Uh, There's wonderful books written about this. 
And I bring these kinds of things up because what people want you to believe is, oh, well, you're a Christian, you believe in the Bible, you must be kind of an ignoramus. You must be scientifically illiterate. The fact of the matter is the opposite is true. The Bible is revealing things about so-called science long before human beings should have known these things because God is the one that designed this universe. This universe is a ball, a sphere, the book of Job says, the oldest book of the Bible. I think it's in Job 26, verse 7, that hangs suspended in space. You want to talk about scientific accuracy? Compare that to what the Quran says. Where the earth sits on the back of an elephant. And that's why we have earthquakes, because the elephant is walking. And people want to say we are scientifically illiterate, and yet the Quran and Islam gets a free pass. And you'll find these kinds of things over and over again in the Bible. Count the stars if you're able to. Ha, ha, ha. You can't count them. Well, how would God know? Well, he designed it all. He knows their innumerable character. And God here makes a statement to Abram that seems, from the human perspective, and remember, Abram's mind is largely operating still, on HVP, human viewpoint, not DVP, divine viewpoint, for the simple reason that he thought his heir was going to be Eliezer of Damascus. From the human viewpoint, the whole promise of God seemed absolutely on its face absurd. I mean, it didn't make any sense. I'm 75 or more, my wife is 65, and here God is telling me that from... The womb of Sarah is going to come a nation of people that will be so numerous, they're going to be like the stars of heaven, the dust of the earth, and the sand of the seashore. I mean, if God, put yourself in Abram's shoes, and God said that to you through direct revelation, what would you do with that? Most of us, I fear to say, would scoff at it. I mean, most of us would probably be so afraid of being ridiculed that if God said that to us, we wouldn't advertise what he said. The whole thing doesn't make any sense. And yet, look at the response of Abram. Verse 6. Then he, that's Abram, believed in the Lord. I mean, he at some point put aside human viewpoint, human way of doing things, and he said, you know, if God believes, if God said it, that settles it. I don't know if I have to have an explanation for everything. God said it, God can deliver, therefore I will believe it. Is that you in your walk with the Lord? Some people I'm sort of uh, envious of them. They have a lot of faith, a lot more than I have. And they will just believe things that they think are from God, despite the fact that what they just said makes no sense concerning how the world operates. Abram was one of those types of people. 
And what exactly did Abram believe? That's a great question. He believed in the disclosure of God. He believed in the power of God. He believed that God, against all odds from the HVP human viewpoint, could pull it off. Because after all, he's God. And is anything too hard for the Lord? Abram didn't know how, how God was going to do this, but he knew what God said. And he was taken outside. He was given this counting lesson. He was told what he was told by God. It obviously was absurd on its face. I mean, how could I have a child at my age? Why wouldn't Eliezer of Damascus be my heir? Oh, you know what? It doesn't matter what I think. The only thing that matters is what God just said. And I believe it. I trust it. Now, most commentators stop the story there. What did Abram believe? Oh, it was just a generic promise of innumerable descendants. And I'm here to tell you that the story is a lot more complicated than that. I believe that because Paul the Apostle interprets this story for us in Galatians 3 verse 16. I don't know of any better commentator on the Old Testament than the New Testament. Amen? I mean, you're studying a story like this. Don't run off to your favorite commentator. Run off to the inspired New Testament and see what the New Testament has to say. And Paul the Apostle makes this statement in Galatians 3, verse 16. Hey, chapter 3, verse 16. That's kind of a salvation number, isn't it? Reminds me of John 3, 16. It's kind of interesting in our verse divisions of the Bible, two of the most important verses on the issue of salvation are in a chapter 3, verse 16. Easy to remember. Paul, commenting on what Abram just experienced here in Genesis 15, verse 6, says, Now the promises were spoken to Abram and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Paul picks up on the idea that seed, here's our fancy word for the day, is a collective singular. You say, well, what is a collective singular? A collective singular is a noun that can be used in the singular or the plural. You say seed, are you talking about an individual sunflower seed, or are you talking about a whole bag of them? The word seed covers both, right? Singular or plural. It's like the word sheep. When you use the word sheep, you could be referring to a flock, or you could be referring to an individual animal. Same with the word hair, by the way. People say, Andy, you need a haircut. And I don't say, oh, what what hair are you talking about? I can pull it out right now. Because hair can be a singular strand or it can be everything on your head. That's the word seed. What Abram believed, according to the commentary of the Apostle Paul, 
in a chapter 3, verse 16 of the Bible was not just a generic promise of many seed being born to him in his old age. Most commentators teach just that and they stop right there because they don't factor in the whole counsel of God's word. Did Abram believe that through his body would come seed as numerous as the stars? Yes, he believed that. But that's not all. He believed something else. He believed that through this mass amount of seed or descendants would come a seed. A individual coming from a nation. So when Abram believed the promise of seed, collective singular, he had in his mind the promise of God that through his aged body and that of his wife would come an innumerable nation, but from that innumerable nation would come an individual who would be the savior of the world. Well, where did Abram get the idea that an individual was going to come? Aren't you glad we've been studying the book of Genesis verse by verse? Because all the way back in Genesis 3 verse 15, this singular individual is predicted. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. Eve, from your lineage is coming somebody who's going to crush Satan, an individual. That's why when Cain was born, Genesis 4 verse 1, it says, Now the woman had relations, excuse me, the man had relations with his wife Eve. She conceived and she gave birth to Cain and said, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. With the help of is in italics in the English translation, meaning it's not there in the original. What she actually said is, I have begotten a man-child, the Lord. She thought she had given birth to the Messiah. Why would she think such a thing? Because his coming was announced in Genesis 3, verse 15. That was the reason for her case of mistaken identity. And then we read what Lamech said to Noah, his son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Noah is the one that's going to fix the curse. Why would Lamech think that about Noah? Why the case of mistaken identity? Because the coming of the Messiah is predicted in Genesis 3, verse 15. And then we learn that Noah has three sons and this messianic channel is going to come through the lineage of Shem. And then the lineage of Shem was ultimately traced to Abram, the patriarch of the nation of Israel, where God says concerning Abram, through you the whole world will be blessed. Meaning that this coming one who's going to crush Satan's head is coming through your lineage. And that's why there's this messianic chart starting with Genesis 3 verse 15 
going through Seth, going through Noah, going through Shem, ultimately coming to Abram. This is why they all had a knowledge of this coming Messiah. And you wouldn't believe the Old Testament scholars that are extremely critical of this interpretation. Oh, you're reading the New Testament back into the Old, they say. No, I'm not. I'm simply following what the Messianic expectation was in Old Testament times. They all knew that this Messiah was coming. And Paul says Abram knew. And so when God made to Abram a promise that seemed absolutely ridiculous, you have to understand what Abram believed. He didn't just believe in the generic promise of many seed. He believed in the promise that there's coming a seed who's going to fix the world's problems related to sin. And he believed it. The truth of the matter, folks, is the plan of salvation... As you go through the Bible, it's always the same. It's always faith alone in Christ alone. It's just Abram was looking forward and didn't know the name Jesus. We look backward and we do know the name Jesus. We're looking backward 2,000 years. Abram is looking forward 2,000 years, but it's the exact same person of Jesus Christ. That's who Abram was trusting in or relying upon. And what did God do? Because Abram believed this promise. It's at the end of verse 6. It says, then he, that's Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, that's the Lord, reckoned it to him for righteousness. And of course, the Bible is obviously Texan because it uses this word reckon, right? In fact, there's no doubt in my mind that Paul could not be Texan. Because Paul said he was content no matter what state he was in. (laughs) But the thing to understand here is the moment Abram believed in that promise is the moment God reckoned it to him for righteousness. Watch this very carefully because if you miss this, you miss the whole point of Christianity. Abram was righteous because God made him righteous positionally. The Protestant reformers call this alien righteousness. Why is it alien righteousness? Because it's coming from a source outside of ourselves. It's transferred to us at the point of faith. Paul in the New Testament talks about this. In the book of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9, and he says, May be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. Did you hear that? Not having a righteousness of my own as derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God. See that? It's alien. It's foreign. It's something that's transferred to you. 
on the basis of faith. I, I, I don't know about you, but I'll tell you this much about myself. I have no desire or interest in standing before God one day in my own righteousness. Which, when you think about it, is not worth that much anyway. God does not call us to stand before Him one day through our own loin coverings and our own self-righteousness and our own religiosity and our own good intentions. If that's what you're going to do, best of luck to you. We stand before God through His righteousness, which was alien which was foreign, it was transferred to us at the point of faith. The NIV has a very interesting translation of this. It says, Abram believed in the Lord, and he, that's God, credited it to him as righteousness. Now, we all know what credit is, right? Particularly this time of the year, we love credit. Because credit allows us to get goodies with no payment. The day of payment is postponed. Abram got this whole package from God, transferred righteousness on credit. Why did he get it on credit? Because it hadn't been paid for yet. When would it be paid for? 2,000 years later in the person of Jesus Christ. Abram looking forward by faith, not knowing the name Jesus, trust in a promise of God which seems irrational, and God gave Abram righteousness on credit even though it hadn't been paid for. It's the exact same way that we're saved today. The difference is we look backward, we do know the name Jesus, and we don't receive it on credit because it's already been paid for. And what you've stumbled into here in Genesis 15, verse 6, is the Apostle Paul's favorite Bible verse. I mean, Paul, of all of the things in the Bible he could have quoted, he quotes this all the time. Romans 4, verse 3. Romans 4, verse 9. Romans 4, verse 22. Galatians 3, verse 6. Paul keeps quoting Genesis 15, verse 6. Abram believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Why does Paul like this verse so much? The answer is, Paul was dealing with Pharisees. You say, well, what's a Pharisee? A Pharisee, in the time of Paul, was somebody trying to mix obedience to the law with faith, to be justified before God. The Pharisees were always mixing the two together. Everywhere Paul went, he dealt with Pharisees. And that's why Paul keeps quoting this verse. Because when you study this verse in context, in chronology, which is what you do when you move through the Bible verse by verse, is you learn that Abram could not have been justified by faith plus circumcision. 
Well, why not? Well, Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. Do you guys agree with me on that? Genesis 17, circumcision is implemented amongst the Hebrews. We're not even there in Genesis 17. We're in Genesis 15. How could Abram be justified by circumcision when there was no such thing in terms of an implementation from God? How about people that say, hey, you've got to be justified by by believing, but you've also got to keep the law. What does Paul do? He quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, because he says you're not paying attention to the chronology of the Bible because the law of God would not be handed down for another 600 years. So if the law of God is not handed down for another 600 years, obviously Abram wasn't justified before God by the law. There was no law. He wasn't justified by circumcision because there is no circumcision. What does justified mean? It means it's a a forensic declaration of righteousness. That's what it is. It's a legal term. It's what a jury does. Your Honor, not guilty. How could heaven itself declare you not guilty? Because you don't stand before God in your own righteousness. That's why you're not guilty. You stand before God in alien righteousness, transferred righteousness, righteousness from outside of yourself. And when we understand this, we understand very quickly how Phariseeism, we don't have the Pharisees exactly like the Bible describes them, but we've got them. It's the world of religion. Who will always tell you something like this. Well, I'm glad you trusted in Christ for salvation, but you've got to live a certain way. You've got to give a certain way. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And my response to that is get your butt out of the way. (laughs) We don't say you believe in Jesus, but... Get your butt out of the way. Am I saying this from a pulpit in a church? Because there is no but. Do you see a a conjunction but here? Is there anything in this verse that says but? All it says is he believed in the Lord. Generic promise of seed, individual seed coming, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is so easy. How have we messed this up? I'll tell you how we've messed it up. Because if you believe this, you don't get any credit. You don't get a stroll into heaven as proud as a peacock saying, Lord, look at what I did for you. That's what, this is why the world of religion thrives, because it feeds on the pride of man. If anything that will abase you and bring you to humility in the Bible, nothing will do it faster than this doctrine here. Because you get no credit, it was credited to you. It was given to you. It was transferred to you as a gift because someone else paid the price that we memorialized today 
at the Lord's table. Galatians 3 verse 29 therefore calls us Abraham's descendants. We are Abraham's seed. The Greek word translated seed is sperma. Where you get the word obviously sperm. Why in the world is little old me called the seed of Abraham? Is it because that we as the church have taken over Israel's position? The reformed community will tell you that. They will tell you that's what that verse means. The truth of the matter is we are not the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is what is necessary to be Israel. We are the seed, singular, the word promise there, singular, we are the seed of Abraham. He does not call us, Paul the Apostle, in Galatians 3 verse 29, the seed of Abraham because suddenly we've taken over Israel's position. He calls us the seed of Abraham for this very simple reason, and he uses the singular noun promise there for this reason. We're justified before God personally, the exact same way Abram was. was. The only difference is Abram was looking forward by faith, not knowing the name Jesus, and what he received from God, he received it on credit. We are justified before God the exact same way. The only difference is we're looking 2,000 years backward where Abram was looking 2,000 years forward. We do not receive it on credit because it's been paid in full and we do know the name Jesus Christ. Other than those dissimilarities, the plan of salvation is exactly the same. We are the seed of Abram. This is why Lewis Berry Chafer tells us that upwards of 150 passages of Scripture condition salvation upon believing only. 150 times the New Testament tells us this. Not circumcision, not the law, not Phariseeism, not obedience, not religiosity, not good intentions... But because you put your faith in a person, it's what saves you. There are many, many classic examples of this. You know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Easy. How about this? Life's most important question from the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? Can you think of a more important question to ask than that? I can't. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said circumcision, law, Phariseeism, church attendance, giving regularly. Didn't say anything like that. I mean, my goodness, he didn't even tell the Philippian jailer to walk an aisle. What kind of evangelistic school did Paul and Silas go to? They didn't even tell him to fill out a card. He didn't even say, okay, bow your head, close your eyes, and repeat after me. He just simply said believe. Because that's all the Bible requires. 
Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed. In this case, he's already come. And hang in there and be tough, and I hope you make it in the end. No. He gave them immediate assurance of salvation. You will be saved. See, a lot of times when I'm teaching verse by verse, I try to give the gospel at the end, and it's kind of hard sometimes to cram it in there because sometimes it doesn't always exactly relate to the passage. I don't think I have that problem today because you just saw in these verses the most crystallized, clear articulation of the gospel that you could find. So there's really no need for me to re-articulate the gospel. It's already been articulated. The only thing you need to do is believe it. Believe is another way of saying trust, uh, reliance upon, dependence upon a person. And in this case, it's the person of Jesus Christ who came 2,000 years ago that we memorialized at the Lord's table. I hope as the Spirit of God takes these truths and convicts people, either in the building or online or listening or viewing in archive format after the fact or reading the transcript, that they would respond to this simple message and secure their future by believing or trusting in the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for this man, Abram. We're grateful for learning about his successes and even some of his shortcomings. And we know, Father, that the way you work is different than the way the world does. Help us to walk out this week, even as we move now into the Christmas season, focused on the birth of your son, that Jesus has been born. He has paid the penalty for all of our sins. And by receiving what he did by faith as a free gift, we receive the alien, transferred, imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, where God the Father looks at us as if we're just as pure as his son. What a message to proclaim, to think about, and to share this time of the year. We pray you'll do this great work. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.